When someone dismisses you like that, you just immediately feel like, I feel like 10 times bigger physically. You know, the beauty that I've worked hard to see in myself in the mirror is not there anymore because somebody has reduced me to my size. It's impossible to say anything because, you know, this is the director of the company, but you just want to shake that person and tell them to fucking grow up. From Soho Media Club, this is Naked Stories, a series taking you into the inner world of the media industry where prejudice and glass ceilings are laid bare. Stories that are hard to tell out in the open, but have the power to change the future. Produced by PRL Studio, I'm Roses Okipo. Welcome to episode two, White Walls. Don't tolerate me as different. Accept me as part of the spectrum of normalcy. Anne Northrop. My guest today calls herself the fat brown girl. But I decided to call her Azelia. Not your average bloom. She vibrantly walked in with her shocking pink blazer and boldly shared her story. Born in England to Asian parents, Azelia is in her mid-twenties and is a development researcher working in TV. Following her dad's footsteps, she pursued a career in the creative industry. It's the people around me definitely in my extended circles were definitely like they're all bankers and that kind of thing, you know, finance, law, all of that stuff. But my dad works in media, so I think he's always kind of been like a big role model because I think I saw him and was just like, oh, well, he did it, so. Azelia went to an all-girls private school where although the majority of her friends were Asian, the environment was inherently racist. Microaggressions play a part in the jigsaw of daily racism and the damage they do over a lifetime is immeasurable. It's weird to me because I think even then I still felt very English and I felt like I was trying hard to be English. I remember somebody saying to me, oh, but you're like a cool Indian. And at the time I was like flattered by that, which is so like, I just, I think I'd internalized racism <laughs> so much that I just thought, oh, thanks. Like, in hindsight, that's actually what she was saying to me was the things about you that make you like act white are the things that make you valid in my eyes, which is a terrible thing to say to someone. I mean, she's basically just saying you're a coconut. So a coconut is somebody who is brown on the outside and white on the inside, also known as a bounty. That was basically what I felt like my identity was growing up. I think just being Asian, you're kind of you're always going to, if you're not white, which technically is the default in this country, in a lot of people's eyes, unfortunately, you're always going to experience things that aren't necessarily just a little bit untoward and a bit racist. I think it's weird because I didn't really, I don't know if I looked at them as racist. I don't think until I got older and fully understood what racism was, I don't think I completely got got it. Like I know myself and I know that I'm this person that like, like I'm a bit geeky and I'm a bit weird and I'm really awkward and shy and I love like 80s movies a bit too much and I have really shit taste in books but it's fine. <laughs> I love like young adult novels that I'm way too old for. And my point is that like I'm a layered individual and I think when it comes to these racist incidents that you're just reduced to your skin colour. Over or covert, racism is widespread and the impact is profound. Azelia shared her first experience of explicit racism with me. 
I was walking down the street and this man literally just out of nowhere turned around to me and said, oh, if you're going to build a bomb, just can you go do it somewhere else? I was like, surely that didn't just happen. I turned to my friend and I was like, did you hear that? He was like, hear what? And then afterwards I felt like crying, but I don't think I could fully understand why at the time. It's weird because so many of these things that happened to me, I don't process in that moment. I'm like, why do I feel so sad? I should just brush it off. And then like a year later, I'm like, well, no, because that was a really awful traumatic thing to happen to you. Even though at the time you feel like it's a small thing, but it's really not. I remember kind of spacing out for a moment and feeling like a little bit warm. Like I had quite a physical reaction to it, which I don't think, I don't know if it's because I'd never experienced racism in that way. I'd experienced it in a very covert way. Like I, like I said, I went to an all-girls private school. The environment is inherently racist a lot of the time. I'd never experienced it in a way that was like, oh, you, I'm going to pick on you because of the colour of your skin and I'm going to say this horrible thing to you. I'd never experienced that. So I think I had a very visceral, physical reaction to it that was like almost like the beginnings of an anxiety attack. Since she was a child, people had always commented on Azealia's weight. I know, what the fuck? We know that this shit is inappropriate, but it still happens now. Health anxieties tormented her from a very young age, and it wasn't until her third year at university that Dr. Google's result for what the hell is wrong with me came to a conclusion when she'd self-diagnosed herself. Growing up, that I didn't really feel like I was kind of looked at as an individual. It was kind of like, oh, she's a fat child, so we need to treat her in that way. And it was kind of like there was a cookie cutter way to treat a fat person when it comes to doctors. And I still feel that to an extent. I finally found a good doctor, but I think the experiences I had growing up were kind of a blueprint for how anxious I started to feel about going to the doctor. And when I was at uni, I just didn't go for three years because I was like, I could go and I could basically get verbally assaulted by a doctor. She breaks it down in terms of what kind of thoughts were going through her head. I don't know how it works for other people, but for me, the main symptom is negative, intrusive thoughts. So I can't put a stop to them. It's like, I w- it would be like, you have breast cancer. And then I would have to check for breast cancer constantly. Like, I think I was checking 30 times a day. I was getting my mum to check. Like, it was ridiculous. Her hypochondriacal nature didn't just impact Azealia's mental health. It manifested itself in physical ways too. The train that I get in the morning is a very busy train. It gets packed about a stop after I get on. You can't get a seat. Is It's literally just like sardines. And I remember specifically, like one of the worst panic attacks I had was on the way to work where there was these two people stood either side of me. And I was trying to watch, I remember I was trying to watch a series of unfortunate events on my phone to distract myself. It's weird, it's like there's not enough air in the carriage. There's physically not enough air for you to be able to breathe. Obviously there is, but it doesn't feel that way. And they were talking, they stood either side of me talking at each other. They bumped into each other and I wanted to scream because I was like, I can't breathe and you're shouting at me. And obviously they weren't, but it felt that way. I genuinely felt like I was looking down on myself. My hearing, it was like my head was in a bubble and I couldn't physically hear anything except these two people. And even then it was very muffled and I just had to get off the train because I don't think, I think I probably would have passed out if I'd stayed there. And then afterwards, you just feel so tired. And I never understood until recently, my therapist was like, well, yeah, because you're basically running a marathon in your brain. It's a really draining experience. And then came the breakdown. Azealia described how her obsession with medical worries about her health took over her life and sadly caused her to leave her job because of it. When I started my first sort of industry job as an editor, 
for a human rights organisation. I worked there for about six months, I think it was, and then had basically what was the equivalent of a mental health breakdown because of the health anxiety. So it was like, I remember like my boss, we worked from her basement and her husband had cancer and he was fine, but he was kind of towards the end of it and basically in remission. But even hearing the word cancer was just terrifying to me. Like it would just make me, I would instantly, if I heard that word, think that I had it. And then I would get physical symptoms in my body. So like, it's really weird. Like if I would think of stump my stomach and having bowel cancer, I would need to go to the toilet. And then I would get symptoms of what could be bowel cancer. And that happened in lots of different forms. So that was happening and I just had to quit my job my first job because of that it was just very stressful <laughs> the boss that I had was a lovely woman she had anxiety as well so we would talk about that but she also was quite stressed and it was a very small team so I think it all basically just built up to a point where I just decided that I had to kind of for my own mental health just take a step back and stop working basically Azealia got her first job in TV through a diversity scheme working for one of the largest production companies based in the north of England she felt lucky to have got a place I think in the TV industry, we're definitely made, to, and probably in a lot of ent the entertainment industry, you're made to feel lucky to have a job. I think because a lot of the time you're working contract to contract or you're a freelancer, I think particularly as a minority, when you kind of get in through a diversity scheme, because I think most of the people that I know who are sort of my age working in TV have gotten through diversity schemes. Um, it rarely happens any other way. It didn't take long for the BS to start. From the moment Azealia walked into the office of her new job, nothing gets you more psyched than the feeling of not fitting in. I think walking into my first job, I felt really alienated and I think it just felt like a very white space that wasn't made for me. I think when you're the only person of colour working particularly in creative teams because there might be a few dotted around that work in finance or whatever, but in creative teams I think we're quite rare. <laughs> It's very easy to feel like you're a token. And at the time, because I did get in through a diversity scheme, I think I didn't quite clock that that's how I was feeling. I think I just thought, oh, I got in through a diversity scheme. That's great. Like they're doing more to, you know, help people like me into the industry. But I think on a subconscious level, it felt tokenistic. And I don't think I realised that until a few years later when I looked back and realised nothing's changed. It's still a white office, you know, so that diversity scheme didn't really do anything. It was just a way for them to tick a box easily and say that they were doing something. I think it became very clear to me that the company didn't necessarily have the right interests at heart. I can't speak for everyone because I've only heard a few comments about from certain people and, you know, you hear those things after you've been there and them laughing things off and you think, well, then what was the point? I sat in my interview saying, I feel really passionate that you guys are working with this diversity scheme and are paving the way for people like me. I said those words in my interview and now I just feel like, well, why did I say that? Because it's obviously not true. You don't care. You just wanted to tick a box. And even the walls were white. It just felt like, I felt like I was in a box of just whiteness. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I don't know. It made me feel like I stood out as well. I think I would walk down the corridors and walk past people. And this was up in the north, so I don't know if that had something to do with it, but I felt like I was different. I felt like there's something about me that instantly makes me stand out. You know, no matter what I do, no matter how much, now how hard I work or... You know, I feel like I'm always just going to still sort of be reduced to my skin colour. Even if people don't say it, I think you still feel like that. You can't help but feel like that when you're the only person. 
In hindsight, does Azealia feel positive about the diversity scheme she was on? When I first got my job, my first job through a diversity scheme, I was really grateful for it. I thought, this is amazing. They're still, you know, they're doing stuff to help people like me. They really care. They've signed up. They, they're like linked up with the Creative Diversity Network, which means, you know, that's a whole network about diversity. Like, that's a pretty big commitment. And now I just look back and think, it is basically a way to tick a box without doing any fucking work. They are more of a hindrance because I think they allow companies to think that they're, they're helping because they've got one brown person or one black person and actually that's not enough. And I think there's not much progression from those roles quite often. And a lot of people end up dropping out of the industry when they get to sort of like AP level, like a lot of ethnic minorities end up dropping out, which shows that something is wrong here and those diversity schemes aren't enough. Azealia moves quickly on to work in a small, very stressful production as a researcher. She was excited nonetheless to have her first research job. Despite immersing herself in the role, wait for it, here comes more BS. The bubble of excitement was soon burst when Azealia discovered that she had been directly impacted by an act of gender inequality. And it really was one of those awkward moments. One of the APs went on holiday for a month. It was around Christmas time. So I basically ended up doing a lot more than I was before. And I remember everybody had gone to lunch one day and it was just me and him. And he just turned around and said to me, they actually pay really well here, don't they? this is how much they're paying, you know, like that's really good for like a logger rate. And I just felt sick because that boy was earning at least, I can't remember the exact amount, but it was between 50 and 75 pounds more a week than me, which is a shocking amount of money, especially at that level. Like you we're both quite entry level, but the amount of work that I was doing, it just felt like I honestly, my heart was in my stomach. You know, I'm not diminishing logger jobs at all, but just I was doing so much work and at the end of the day, my job was a few steps up from his. And that's just normal. Like I should be, if I was get, if a producer was getting paid less than me, there would be an issue. There was an added layer of complexity. Not only was the logger a white male, but there was also a sprinkle of favoritism as he was the son of the owner of the building. Again, awkward. So I think there was an issue of nepotism there, um, which permeates throughout the rest of the industry because I think so often people get jobs through nepotism, but when the people that already kind of are working in the industry are all white, then you're just bringing in more white people. And I think that's basically what was happening, at, not just, just across the industry. Um, but yeah, I think it was partially a nepotism issue. I think, I think also if you go through life unchallenged as a straight white man, you probably take less shit than somebody like me who's been taught to tone police would. Elated to be in such a fantastic job, but rocked by the gender discrimination and nepotism that was so blatant. Did Acelia speak to anyone about this treatment? I didn't feel like I could speak up about it and say, why is this boy earning so much more than me? But I think at the same time, I just felt, I was just too scared to say anything. I didn't, I felt... Like, if I say something, they're just going to find somebody else. I'm replaceable. The industry runs on a culture of fear. I think, like, you know that you're on a contract and whether they renew your contract is up in the air. They can literally get rid of you for no reason. They don't have to give you a reason. They just have to say, oh, we're not hiring you again. 
So you're kind of afraid to speak up. Even talking about, you know, pay, like how much you're getting paid, we're discouraged from doing it. We're discouraged from talking about when someone says something racist in the industry, you know, anything like that, sexual assault, you're discouraged. And I think that silence that this industry thrives on is what maintains those systems of oppression. I think like that's what keeps them, that's what upholds them. Because as soon as we start talking to each other about our wages or this guy said a racist thing, then those walls are sh surely they're going to come crashing down because the industry can't function then. So, looking back, would Azealia consider confronting the issue? I hope now that I would say something, but I think when you're young as well, nobody sits you down and tells you how the industry works. Nobody tells you how much you're supposed to be earning. So the job that I started this year was the very first time that on my first day, my boss sat me down and said, if you have a problem with anyone, you come to me. If you have a problem with me, you go to this person. Was like totally fine about my therapy appointments. Was is really open about mental health. Like not forcing me to talk about it, but said, you know, if you want to talk about it, we can. And that's like three and a half years in the industry it's taken for somebody to actually sit down on my first day and have that conversation with me. And I think just that conversation made me feel like if I have an issue, I actually have someone to talk to about it and they'll take me seriously. But that doesn't happen at most companies. So I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go. I could tell anyone because I would just get fobbed off or replaced. I think I felt so embarrassed and I felt like, well, obviously they don't think that I'm as worthy as he is, so I can't admit that to him. I mean, now I would because I just, I just have so few fucks left to give. Having grown up in a town and attending a girls' school where the majority were Asian, it was a culture shock when, as part of a work research task, Azealia was sent out to do a vox pop, targeting retired people in a predominantly white area. I was deployed to places in the country that were had a lot of old people, and those places tend to be quite white, I think, as well. Uh, so I went off and they sent another employee with me who was also Asian. Until I started working, I wasn't used to being the, mi the minority to that extent. And so we went to wherever we went, I can't remember where it was, but it was like one of those seaside-y type villages. We were looking for old people. Um, we were kind of hoping to approach them and just ask them if they'd like to learn a little bit more about what we were doing. There was kind of no commitment involved because it's development, so they could just talk about their experiences. It was a really nice day. It was very sunny. We got ice cream. So we would have to obviously approach people to ask them if they were interested in helping or chatting, explaining what we were doing. And they would see two Asian girls and physically recoil. I mean, there was women running away from us. There was like women hiding behind their husbands, people just being rude and just telling us basically to fuck off. What should have been a straightforward task ended up being not only an unsuccessful day, but an experience that till this day is unnerving for Zelia to recount. There was very much a sense of, I feel like I need to come back with a certain list of a number of people, otherwise I've failed. And I was panicking about it and she was panicking about it. And we were both thinking, shit, we're gonna go back with nothing. And it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Because the thing that you don't like, these people don't like about me, I can't change. I can already hear the arguments. Surely this could have likely happened to two white girls walking down the street. But I think when you're a minority, you kind of have a gut instinct that it's because of how you look, because they see your skin colour and they think it's a threat to them, which is crazy to me because I just am a person. I'm a human being and I have a bit more melanin in my skin than you do. And I think you just know, because I guess it's like all those experiences in life have kind of prepared you for that to happen to you. Azealia was shook, 
knowing that the next day, in an open office, she would have to debrief with her boss. Can you imagine debriefing from a blank notepad? But this was also Azelia's opportunity to speak up and share, well, report her experience. I explained that it wasn't as fruitful a day as I'd hoped. And I think, I I felt comfortable enough to say to them, I think a big part of it was the fact that, you know, it was a very white area and they had two Asian girls approaching them. I was kind of joking as I said it, but I also tried to make it clear that I felt like part of the reason that we didn't get as many people signed up as we wanted to was because it was two Asian women approaching a lot of white people in an area that they're not necessarily used to people who look like me. And instantly, one of my bosses just kind of went, oh, well, I don't think it would have been that. I don't think it was about race. Because he was a really lovely guy. I know that he didn't mean it like that. A nice little brush under the carpet of Azealia's comments had her hopes of being heard dashed as her experience was negated. I know he wasn't trying to gaslight me, but essentially that's what happened because something that I felt sure of and I felt so sure of that I actually said something, even if it was just in passing, is immediately taken away from you like, oh, she's playing the race card. But it comes back to this I don't see colour thing because you have to see it to acknowledge that I experience life differently to you. I think that's basically what was happening. It was he was trying to make me make us both feel better, but that's not what happened. When you're kind of shut down that way, you feel <sighs> resigned. Feelings of anger, sadness and frustration ran through Azelia's head, full of emotion and with tears in her eyes, doubt ran through her mind. Should I have even brought this issue up? I had to kind of stop myself from just rolling my eyes because I should be used to it by now. I felt quite sad. I felt like a heaviness in my chest because I think regardless of how many times you experience something like that, you still just feel like, God, is nobody going to listen to me? Now, I don't want to dash her boss into the trash, but I have to be rational and consider... Was Azealia's boss in the wrong? After all, his intentions were genuine and he probably didn't even realise he was gaslighting. I asked her, what should he have done differently? I think I would advise him to listen. And I think quite often white people have, not just white people, I know that I've done the same thing. I think sometimes you have a tendency to be just defensive and almost immediately like, oh, well, that didn't happen because... In your mind, you're used to it not happening to you. So you think, can't be about that. I would advise that person to listen and take stock of why they're thinking that way. Because essentially you're thinking that way because you have a privilege of not having to worry about that kind of thing. So I think instead of just saying things, I think quite often we just people just say things without actually thinking about what they're about to say. Think about what you're going to say. Think about what kind of impact it's going to have on that person and whether it's going to be helpful or whether it's going to silence them. Like most minorities in a predominantly white environment, Azealia felt like the only people she could trust to understand her frustrations were other non-white people. She found some solace, some solace, in a group of runners who were also minorities. A group she knew would understand. I still had somewhere else to kind of release that anger and feel validated and feel like somebody would somebody actually says to me, are you okay? Of course it was a race thing, you know? That was really helpful and I definitely felt my, my shoulders just kind of dropped and I felt a bit more like validated and calm after that because I was like, I'm not crazy. I think we're made to feel like we're crazy. You know, it's gaslighting essentially. Whether somebody means it or not, 
it is almost always about race if you're not a white person. Noisy. This is a term in television. It's jargon I haven't heard before. With curiosity, I listened to Azealia describe what this word means in the media industry. And what I discovered is an unsettling concept. In development, there is a term, noisy. It's a provocative term. And it's basically, when a channel asks you for an idea that's noisy, they're basically asking you for an idea that is going to shake the room, is going to get them trending on Twitter. But it's almost always at the expense of a minority community. I mean, I don't want to add specific shows here, but there is, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of those shows floating around and a lot of broadcasters asking for them. I think they think it's a way to talk about ideas that are provocative, like race. But actually, by doing that, you're then putting something that isn't up for debate, up for debate. It's a really big issue. It's probably one of the biggest issues in the industry, if you ask me. Something in Azealia was telling her this is all wrong. That trusted gut feeling was saying, there is no good in Noisy. She felt powerless to speak out and oppose the word. The reoccurring feeling of gratitude to even have a job kept the fear of losing it alive if she was to say what she really thought. And I remember when somebody explained it to me, feeling kind of like this weird, like visceral gut reaction that something was wrong. But I think I was young and I just thought, oh, this is how the industry works. And I think that's part of the problem, because if you're just told that's the industry, how the industry works, then more people are just going to come in and think that's how the industry works and then the issue isn't going to stop. But it always felt wrong. It always felt wrong on a gut level to me. I think I should start listening to my gut more because clearly, like you say, it's a sign that something is wrong. But I think what it comes down to is that the term noisy is a cover-up for something much more sinister. The word noisy basically allows us to say it without feeling guilty. It allows us to pitch racist ideas without feeling guilty. It allows us to pitch horribly provocative ideas that aren't going to benefit anybody. But, you know, white people are going to love that shit. So, you know, we'll just use this term to cover it up so that it doesn't sound like we're doing something really bad, but actually what we're doing is very bad. And I don't think I realised that until I started... There was a very specific idea that just felt so wrong to me that I just thought, actually, there's something very wrong with this term. I I think before that, the ideas that had been attached to the word noisy that I'd heard weren't maybe as sinister... And then I think it got to a point where there was one idea that just felt so wrong that I thought, yeah, this is a cover-up for something that should not be happening. Although Azealia hadn't vocalised her disgust in the word noisy, she did recount being in a situation where a noisy production was being pitched. She couldn't believe what she heard, and neither could I when she told me. One of the most extreme, or probably the most extreme case um, of the, the term noisy that I've come across was when I was working in development and somebody quite high up in the company came up with an idea that was essentially gamifying slavery. The idea was turning slavery into a talking point. I think we have an idea that slavery was like a really long time ago. It actually wasn't. It was hardly abolished. It was just morphed into a different kind of thing and black people are still feeling the effects of it now. And I think to try and turn that into a TV show to get a trending hashtag on Twitter is just tragic. But I remember my very first week in this job, um, somebody put a brainstorm for this idea into my calendar and I didn't know what it was. So I just went in blindly. I 
remember sitting in that room with a bunch of execs. So I think because they were quite keen on the idea and because the idea had come from quite high up, they there was a lot of important people in that meeting. I had no idea what I was going into. Her body went into survival mode. She froze. I was the only non-white person in the room, as is quite common. And when somebody explained what the idea was, I felt physically sick. And I think that was the first time that I realised how bad that term noisy was, because I just thought, we can't use a term like that to cover shit like this stuff. That's not okay. But that's what was happening. And I think I remember again, so many of experience, so many of my experiences, I've just felt frozen in my thoughts and in my feelings because it's like your mind is going 100 miles an hour. You're sat there panicking, thinking, I can't be a part of this. I knew on a gut level that this wasn't okay. But I think me being in that room validated the idea for them because I didn't say anything. I didn't feel like I could say something. I felt like, just like, I just felt like frozen. I, I had no other way to describe it. I didn't feel like, I don't think I said a word in that meeting. That particular noisy idea kind of disappeared after a while. And then a couple of months later, it came back again. This time, something needed to be said. I remember being sat at my desk minding my own business and there was a meeting about it and one of there was another producer who was like an ally very much against it white woman and she was supposed to be in this meeting with the guy who'd come up with the idea and somebody else and last minute somebody said to me you've been quite passionate about this idea why don't you come into the meeting i cannot tell you how not passionate i had been about this idea if i'm not in that room then i'm then they there's just it's going to be a room full of white people they can't say that they've tried to involve authentic voices. But even then, I'm not black, so it doesn't count. And I just, I can't help but think, if they'd had a black person in that room when it was initially being pitched and, and formatted up, would they have still been able to pitch it? I think it's a very deep-rooted issue because once I actually went into that meeting that I wasn't initially supposed to be in, I did actually say something because at this point, I just, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't. I didn't say much, I'll be honest, but I said, I don't think that this is going to be helpful to the experiences of black people in the UK. And the guy who'd come up with the idea turned around and said, oh, well, you know, we're teaching black people about their history. And I just said to him, the West was built on slavery. They don't have, there's not a single day where black people don't think about their history. They're not reminded of their history. I don't think this is helpful. And then the other producer who, the lady that I'd mentioned, stepped in and kind of also went in on him because she was leaving the next week. So she just went off on him. But the conclusion was kind of like, oh, well, you know, we won't, we won't pitch it unless we get some authentic voices involved. And then there was some phone calls to some authentic voices who all said no, and it got pitched anyway. So I think it is evident of a systemic issue in the TV industry. The fact that, I mean, I think we all grew up in a country that is racist. So we are naturally racist and we have to work to be anti-racist. But again, I think if you're a straight white guy who just made it to the top, largely because you're a straight white guy, I mean, I don't think anybody ever told him his ideas were bad even if they were, whether they were just a bad idea or whether they were a hideously racist idea. I think by us kind of staying silent, we are allowing again for those systems of oppression to be upheld because nobody is stopping him. So he thinks he can do what he wants. And I think the fact that he maybe thought that he was doing a good thing, I don't know, is obviously evident of a much larger problem in the industry. I think using race for entertainment 
Years and years of stereotypes and portrayals of overweight people in films, sitcoms, cartoons, pretty much every medium has conditioned us to think. When you see a thin person laying down watching TV, you might assume they're resting. When you see an overweight person relaxing, what goes through your head? Let's keep it real. It's not that they're being leisurely, but lazy. Whether we'd admit it or not, we've all been guilty of broad brush stereotypes. It's easy to fall into that trap. There's a person on the other inside that body. I think those stereotypes of being lazy and greedy, I worry that people look at me and think because of those stereotypes, oh, that's what she's like because of how she looks. I mean, I'm a little bit lazy, but so are a lot of my skinny friends. So people make assumptions. I mean, even if you look at like the way that fat people have been represented in the media over the years, like Augustus Gloop kind of comes to mind and it's like, you're greedy, you're lazy, you're this, you're that. The only kind of positive representation I can think of is hairspray. You know, like, that's pretty much it, and that's shocking, I think. F-A-T. Fat. It's not a word we should feel guilty saying, and it's not a word that people should feel guilty being. Azealia has a point. It's a rarity to see a fat woman as a main character or positively portrayed on TV. The fat woman has seemed to have existed only to be taken the piss out of. When your only representation is the greedy fat kid from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory or, I mean, there's there's literally an Instagram account called Fat Characters and it kind of goes into, it's quite new, but it goes into the portrayal basically of all these characters and there's not, there's no good ones. I mean, even on the news, if there's like an obesity vox pop thing, you just get a picture of someone's fat stomach and it's not, that person isn't a human being. You're not treating fat people like human beings. So I think then that filters into my daily life. And I think also you just grow up like not seeing yourself in anything. You don't, I never see fat brown girls on TV. I never see, never saw them in the books I read, in the movies I watched. So I think I didn't feel like I could identify with my culture because I was watching things that told me that I shouldn't. I think the portrayal of fat people on camera permeates into how we are treated behind the camera and just in life. Like any group that is underrepresented on TV, the only true fix is for a wider range of stories being told. There is a desperate need for diversity behind the camera as well. I was keen to hear Azealia's experiences of the treatment of fat women in production. One of the bosses, I would say, was quite aesthetics driven. The women he chose to give his respect to or start conversations with or even just say hello to were the pretty, skinny, white girls. That's not to say that I don't think that I'm pretty. I just think I'm not the poster girl for Western standards of beauty. I don't want to say he was respectful towards them because I don't class that as respect. But I think he afforded them time and a voice that I didn't necessarily get. And I already have anxiety as it is. I have health anxiety. I have general anxiety disorder. I'm an anxious person. It takes a lot for me in environments where I'm not comfortable to say something. Add to that the fact that somebody is basically telling you that you're not interesting because of the way that you look. It's very difficult to speak up and it's something that I've been penalised for in one of my jobs. I remember getting told off for not speaking enough and the other person that didn't speak enough was also a minority. I was like, are you not seeing the common thread here? Like, there's a reason that we feel the way that we do and these other people, and this is no disrespect to those girls, like, they're lovely, but there's a reason that there's a difference in the way that we carry ourselves. If I'm sat there, you know, if you're only saying hello to, like, 
the people you find attractive, how do you think that that makes me feel like I'm, I feel heavier, I feel physically heavier. I feel like my stomach is all of a sudden sticking out. I feel like all those things that I've been terrified of and used to hate in my body are kind of almost growing because that's all you're seeing. So then I'm then seeing it all over again for the first time. Why? In a lot of people's minds, does the way you look diminish the fact you're also someone who works their ass off? I mean, at the end of the day, I work hard. I participate. I do all the things that I can do. But if you still don't respect me, then there's got to be something else that is different between me and those other girls. This shit, this kind of treatment is embarrassing, degrading and unacceptable. Can we blame Azealia that her default is to laugh things off? When someone dismisses you like that, you just immediately feel like... Like I said, you just feel like, I feel like 10 times bigger physically. I feel like, you know, the beauty that I've worked hard to see in myself in the mirror is not there anymore because somebody has reduced me to my size. I feel like frozen, I think. I think you just feel like literally frozen in your seat and it's impossible to say anything because, you know, this is the director of the company, but you just want to shake that person and tell them to fucking grow up, you know? Like, just stop treating women the way that you're treating them. Stop treating me the way that you're treating me. I think I want to say all these things, but then I'm just physically frozen in my seat and I can't say anything. And I just have to settle for telling my friend later on that I'm pissed off. It's hard enough fighting your own insecurities. How can we as women and men begin to love our bodies the way they are? when we are surrounded by people who continue to fat shame and body shame us. Is it even possible? When will people clock that laughing away their unwanted comments about our physical appearance is a cognitive defence mechanism which often lowers anxiety? The tongue has no bones, but is strong enough to break people down or build them up. When will people... When will you be mindful of your words? Well... Our girl Azealia has not only challenged the 40 facts of obesity, she's also proudly reclaimed the word F-A-T. Fat, baby. I think I got sick of hating my body because other people hated it. Um, I think I just came to the realisation that actually I don't have a problem with the way I look. Other people do. So you grow up thinking, well, this isn't normal. I'm not supposed to look like this. Doctors are telling you you're not supposed to look like this. And I think I just got really sick of it because I spent years dieting. I think I'd been dieting since I was maybe 10 years old because my doctors told me to. So then I kind of decided to do some research into it and I kind of found the body positive movement and I've read a lot of books now that kind of have given me scientific reasons to love my body. And I know that sounds weird because it shouldn't just be a scientific thing, but thin is what is desirable and fat is not what's desirable. So I think now I've, I'm finally comfortable with just letting my flab fly. It's fine. I'm happy about it. Um, there are days, obviously, like that I'm not, but I wore a bikini for the first time ever. And I just realised nobody fucking cares. No one cares that I've got jelly rolls. Nobody cares. Nobody's looking at me. I mean, if they are, you're welcome. People have told me I'm beautiful. But I think I just didn't see it. And I think once you start to realise it and realise that actually beauty is is in the eye of the beholder, not to sound cliche, but it is. And I think you start to realise that you, not everybody likes the same thing. Fat brown girls out there, fuck it. Own it. Own 
that skin you're glowing in. Own that body that is amazing. Own your mind, which is an endless, colourful universe. This will be your superpower. Fuck them all. Be big, bold and beautiful. Whether they like it or not, you are here to stay. Boys overlook me. Women look at me too much. I can't win. So I think you just kind of have to, it comes to a point where you just think, fuck it, I'm just going to do me. And like making that decision was the best decision I ever made. We all have the right to speak our mind and talk freely about the topics that concern us, worry us, or which interest us. Still, something was holding Azealia back. I think to find your voice, especially like my job is a lot of speaking and coming up with ideas. And I don't really feel like my experiences thus far have helped me to find my voice until now because I got really angry and started telling people to stop doing what they're doing. I still don't feel comfortable in my own job to speak up because I think all of those experiences and all of that tone policing makes you think 10 times harder about everything that comes out of your mouth. Whereas like the really pretty skinny white girls that are on the team or white boys, straight white men on the team, they have a confidence that I don't think I have because of partially because of how, well, just because of how we look and our upbringings. I think the way that you look or the way that they look has dictated their upbringing in a certain way, in the same way mine has. We're on the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to feeling comfortable. Likes, loves, Shares and comments. Some people depend on their daily dose of happiness from social media, which can play havoc on our mental health and well-being. So it's positive to hear that, for Azealia, her empowerment was driven by having an outlet through social networks. I had to kind of reshape the way that my brain physically worked. It was literally like an overhaul, um, like a full brain MOT. Um, I had to stop following all the people on Instagram that had aspirational bodies, all the kind of really skinny gym bodies with like their asses sticking out. I had to unfollow all of them and I had to start following people of different sizes, people who were happy to get their roles out, people who weren't able-bodied like me, people who had dark skin. It just completely helped me reframe my idea of beauty because I started to see that I think these people are beautiful So therefore, somebody thinks I'm beautiful. And then I think I just, again, ran out of fucks to give and started writing about it because I started to realise that the people around me didn't know these things. Obviously, they didn't because I didn't know them. So I think I just got quite vocal on Instagram. I think I've done a couple of like body positive posts that have had friends message me and say, I didn't know this. Thank you for sharing this because I didn't know that you felt this way or that I was saying something that could upset you. I didn't know that. So I think as much as people compare themselves to a lot of people on Instagram and it can be a dangerous place, I think it's also a really wonderful place if you're following the right people. And it's helped me so much. Initially, Azealia didn't speak up about her early experiences in media because she felt too scared to. She was starting out in an industry that she already felt unduly lucky to be part of. So speaking up then threatened her job. I think it's the same for everyone. The industry just runs on this culture of fear. So as long as we're all scared and we're not talking to each other about things and sharing those experiences, these companies, the people at the tops of these companies can continue to exploit that 
no one's going to say anything essentially because we feel like as much as people like to virtue signal and post a black square on Blackout Tuesday or whatever, they don't always want to help. And I think it's easier for them to remain apolitical. But my existence is political. I'm brown, I'm fat. So I can't help but be involved. A safe space to report, be heard and feel confident that there will be consequences for the perpetrators is what is lacking in the industry. Painful experiences often lead to powerful passion. I think there needs to be accountability because I think if something racist happens, um, if somebody says anything untoward or anything that's hurtful to someone, I think there needs to be a direct outcome that we know will happen because I think at the moment what happens is people who do work up the balls to go report it nothing you know it's the creative director so they don't do anything because he's the creative director even the creative director needs to be punished properly for racism I don't care that he's the creative director there needs to be a firm set of guidelines on how that person is punished so that you know when you feel, when you go report something, that something is going to happen to that person and it wasn't for nothing. Because I think at the moment, yes, I can sit here and say, oh, we should all speak up, but that's not easy for a lot of people. It wasn't easy for me. And I don't think we should expect people to have to do that because I think really it should be about cultivating an environment that makes people feel like they're valid. And if they do go and complain, you know that there's going to be a direct outcome. Balanced interview panels blind name recruitment, bias training, are all important, but they are not sufficient to fix the problems. Azelia feels that a more proactive approach is needed. Positive discrimination is necessary because I think the only people that have a problem with it tend to be white people. At the end of the day, the in media industry is mostly white people. And particularly in my area, when you're trying to tell stories that don't belong to you, that are of the experiences of people of colour or whatever, you can't just sit there and have an all-white team. I don't think this industry will be fixed until people are happy to hire an all-black development team or an all-minority development team. Because I think if you're just allowing one person or two people, if you're lucky, I think that is just asymptomatic of the fact that you think we're you're still othering us. I think that positive discrimination is necessary. I think you need to have actively seek out black and brown and all ethnic minorities and all minorities, you know, trans people, gay people. Like I think all minorities basically just need to be given a proper leg up instead of hiding behind diversity schemes, which essentially just allow you to tick a box and then be done with it. How would Azealia describe her feelings for our industry? Pride is probably not it, but she can imagine change coming if we keep driving it. I don't feel proud of the industry that I work in. I feel... Like when I tell people that this is my job, I always caveat it with, oh, but I want to do something else. I want to write books. I want to do this. I don't feel happy or proud of the industry. I don't feel proud of myself, or I didn't until this year when I decided to stop taking shit. But I think that doesn't mean that it's not something that can be fixed. I think there are amazing people in this industry and I've met so many amazing people who are really, really gunning for change and are so inspiring to me. And I think that those people will hopefully turn this into an industry that I can be proud of. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Naked Stories. This show was edited by Michael Kalizinski, sound designed by Anton Borove, produced by Anna Zerjic, Jessica Lapsiwala, 
and Tom Biskoski. Narratives written by Jessica Lapsawala and myself, Roses Okipo. See you in the next episode for more non-filtered stories. For now, ciao bella. <laughs>